if you're saving for a rainy day, you better look at the sky. It's getting ready to pour. Next on Principles and Policies. Welcome to today's edition of Principles and Policies. I'm your host, Barry Sheets, the Executive Director of the Institute for Principal Policy. And along with me today is our co-host, the chairman of our institute, my fellow analyst and very good friend, Chuck Michaels. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Barry. Uh, it is great to be here. Every week that you come on with me, it's a gift. It is. And, and it's a gift to me, too. I mean, Chuck, I don't know if you realize over the how many years have we been doing this now, a dozen or more, that I learned so much from you, you know, history and how things weave together. You know, I'm good at the current stuff and politics and picking out the lies and things. You're good at, at the historical forensics, which is like really an area that I'm sadly lacking in. That's why we're a team. You, that is why I hope we work well together and do provide a value add for our listeners at some points. I just had this discussion. Now, it's interesting you bring that up. Oh, by the way, this is our show for May 4th, 2023. Uh, well, ha- and happy National Day of Prayer. That's right. Happy National Day of Prayer. I forgot all about that. The uh, the first Thursday in May has been designated congressionally as the N- National Day of Prayer. So today at noon, we're recording this now at ele- around 11, but today at noon, people will be gathering at town squares, at the courthouses, at churches, and at various other places to petition and seek God's face for his grace and his mercy to us. And we shouldn't just do this once a year. I mean, that's that should be our position in prayer every day, obviously, because this country really needs it significantly. But we're glad when corporate bodies come together and even glad when government officials decide it's not toxic to talk about Jesus Christ on that day. So we'll go ahead and open it up for the virtual or real town square for people to come and congregate together and express their love of God and their love of country, which I think are you know really good sentiments. And as you see all of these things, I'm sorry, I'm running in here. That's okay. But, but as you see all of these naysayers and talking about how we're a post-Christian society or Christendom's dead, I, I challenge you. I think what's happening is, it's not dying, it's pruning. Christendom and the Christian idea of how things are supposed to work together are solidified. And oftentimes you have to do that by pruning. I mean, that's what Christ talked about in many of his parables about the the vine and the vineyard. We're going to clip this off and then we're going to graft these in, the Gentiles to the Jews, and we're going to create a stronger body. We're going to create the true Christendom. And I believe that that is actually happening. See, I'm a very optimistic person when it comes to what God says he can do, because I know he's omnipotent, omniscient, and is the sovereign God of everything in the universe, and he owns it all. So I have no doubts that Christianity wins, folks, that God wins because he already has one. As a matter of fact, when Christ sat on on the cross, as we just celebrated with Resurrection Sunday here just recently, It is finished. Finished. Finished is a a culmination, a completion. It is completed in Christ. We are just doing the catch-up. We are just coming along behind Christ and cleaning, helping to do things and doing our proper response to what he's done for us. And therefore, we will start rebuilding these old waste places, as it talks about in Ezra and Nehemiah and those books in the Old Testament. We're going to rebuild those old waste places 
and rebuild the walls and rebuild the kingdom because that is what God has us to do. So I don't despair and look at it like, oh, no, no, we're going into the dark ages and evil's going to reign for thousands of years. And that, well, that's, you could, we'll talk about eschatology at some other point. But the key for me is I am very optimistic because God is alive, active, and engaged in everything that we're doing. And the only possible outcome that can happen is the one that he's promised in his word. Well, look, it's easy to be optimistic when you're post-millennial like we are. <laughs> well, there is some truth to that, yes. Um, your view on eschatology really, really, really does play into how you view things. Um, it matters. I have a friend who's sort of coming over to the position, and actually he says it's very calming. Yes, I said it is. You see the bad things that are happening, and you know that your offspring and, and their offspring and whoever may have to live through a bad period but exactly. you know at the end that jesus christ is triumphant and liberty is triumphant all these things are going to come out positively in the end now i've had Absolutely. people say well we we can't let america fail and i'm like america's already failed oh yeah um america failed quite a while ago we're essentially running on the fumes this form of government is hard to kill and yet it's all but dead. But what does that mean? That means something else will, uh, God will uh, raise something else to take its place. God always provides a remnant. Exactly. So we believe that God will be triumphant on earth. This is actually, you brought up Christendom. I've right. been hearing a lot of talk about, I've listened to the book, on Christian nationalism uh, by Wolf. I've listened to Wolf's Christian nationalism. And by the way, you have okay. access to that because I bought you Canon Press. Oh, yeah, which I got to dig out because I can't find the link I have. So I'll, I'll see if I can resend it. Um, I appreciate if I that. Can find it. Um, <laughs> but you can listen to that. And it's a good book, but it has flaws. I'll be quite honest. Wolf is a, an Anglican, and there is that issue. Yes, denominationalism falls in here because Anglicans, uh, we're Presbyterian, and uh, like all Presbyterian churches and uh, like Reformed churches, like Dutch Reformed, we are bottom-up government. Anglicanism is top-down. In other words, you're looking to a bishop, just like Catholicism. They're looking at the Pope and the archbishops and the bishops to give them the instructions on how to do liturgy and all these things. Reformed churches and Presbyterians are bottom-up. In other words, the government is done by the local church, and it's done by—you and I both went through an election process. Mm -hmm, absolutely. We had to be chosen by the congregation. Yes. And once we are chosen by the congregation until we prove that we are unworthy of the job— Unfit, yes. Unfit. Then we become what's what are called ruling elders. Yeah, I don't know exactly how it works in the in the Reformed Church. I think it's the same. But well, yeah, uh, well, yeah, we, we're ruling elders or teaching elders. I know you guys have a three elder type system. We have a two. So. Oh, actually, ours is only two. Oh, okay. You're, no, you're that's right. You guys are only two. Yeah, we're only two. Uh, we have ruling and teaching elders. Period. Yeah, teaching elders are ordained 
as men who are trained up. Here's the way I had someone put Formal, it to me. Formally trained, yeah. They are formally trained. I had someone put it to me that the teaching elders are professionals and the ruling elders are the laymen. And that's pretty much it. I mean, we, we don't uh, have yeah, degrees yeah. in theology and that kind of thing. That's, some that's of us right. may. There the are ruling, ruling elder does not have to go to seminary. Right. Uh, there are some ruling elders who are, who are seminary trained. And that's yes, all well. There are. That's all well and good. We are expected to be trained in, in the word and know how to. This is why in Presbyterian churches, at least in the ones I'm familiar with, we can't preach. The ruling elders can't preach, but we can exhort. Right, exactly. What, what's the difference? The difference is <laughs> whether you're ordained as a ruling elder or a teaching elder. Uh, that's, that's the major difference. Right. Okay, that being said, there is a different view of what Christian nationalism would look like. I, just to get the, 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 the thing out of the way, what do I mean by Christian nationalism? I mean a government which operates under Christian principle. Correct. It they, does they, not they operate from the Word of God. Despite all the jumping up and down and eye popping and rolling around on the floor, foaming at the mouth. It does not mean that everybody who is in the United States of America has to be a uh, a practicing Christian. And no, no not and, at all. And it doesn't mean that uh, we would do what the Puritans did. And this is one of the mistakes I think of the Puritans. Although you can look at it, one of the reasons the Puritans did this was you had to make a contract with the companies and that have the charter when you came over that yeah, you were actually a Puritan. Land, yeah. Yeah, you, you made a contract that you were a Puritan and you were coming here to practice your faith. This is just a segue real quick. This Please, is the problem ahead. with Roger Williams. Right. Okay. For, and give a little background. Roger Williams is? Roger Williams is the founder of the colony of Rhode Island. Correct. And yeah, Rhode colonies, Island yes. ha has always been a haven for nonconformists, shall we say. In, right, uh, those who those who are let's say neo orthodox, or or unorthodox, or unorthodox. There is uh, that too. Yes. Uh, back in the days when 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 people thought in those terms, Roger Williams came into the Bay Colony and uh, created so much havoc that they threw him out. They said, "No, you have to leave. You're not, you know, you're not obeying your oath. You're denying right. the oath that you took," and so. They basically threw him out of the colony, and so he wrote to the king and got his own charter. And the, that charter was for what is now called Rhode right. Island and Providence Plantations. That's the official oh, name yes. of Rhode That's, Island. I forgot about Providence Plantations. Providence right? yeah. If you look at a map, Providence is Rhode Island. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a very small state. My mom used to sing a song, you know, poor little Rhode Island, smallest of the fifth or 48. And well, of course, there's 50 now. Of uh, course. There, there was a song about that. Uh, but, but what he did was he got his charter and he set up his colony. And then he had to go back to John Winthrop, who was the head of the Bay Colony. Yep. And say, how do I run a colony? <laughs> Yeah, a little, little hard to do if you don't have any background. Well, if you know anything at all about the whole mess with Ann Hutchins and the and the people who were uh, disrupting Puritan services. Uh, Ann, yes, I, generally, yes. Ann Hutchins 
Hutchinson uh, was essentially hanged as a heretic, but she was given multiple chances. But where did she use as a base to uh, disrupt the Bay Colony? She used Rhode Island. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when I say disrupt, people would come to a Puritan church service. They'd show up in the colony and come to church services and strip naked and walk down the aisle. Oh, okay. So the stuff with the pro aborts doing that in Catholic and and evangelical churches today, I mean, they're painting the churches and trying to disrupt the services is nothing new. Yeah, it's nothing new. And so eventually, you know, they got her as far as getting her on the scaffold twice, along with men. The men they went ahead and hanged. Her, they they gave reprieve after reprieve, and finally, on I think on the third time, they they said, okay. You're obviously not going to reform. And so they went ahead and hanged her. Don't buy into some of the stuff that you hear about harassment. And, you know, uh, the only one doing the harassing was, uh, were these people who were coming in to disrupt the Bay Colony. Okay. Um, And that, that's what happened there. Okay. So, um, I got on that because we were talking about the Puritans. The Puritans had had the idea. They required you to attend a certain number of services every month. And I think it may have been one, one or two, that you absolutely had to be there. Well, that's, you had to that's come. They took attendance. They took attendance, and there you could spend time in the stocks or some other corporal punishment in retaliation. So the the civil authority would uphold church. The civil authority. Now, that's nothing new because Europe had that for quite some time. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's face it, around the time of the Reformation, you had what what was called sacralism. Uh Uh-huh. And sacralism is what... Now, I'll be be quite... our, Our Baptist brothers who know their history are dead afraid of sacralism and have a natural uh, abhorrence of the idea of Christian nationalism and Christendom, which are, are not the same thing. No, I was going to say, I don't believe those, those two. Uh, no, know. they have a natural abhor- abhorrence and you have to understand it in terms of their history because Baptists were being what we would call credo Baptists. Baptists are believers baptism. Mm-hmm. Presbyterians and Reformed are covenantal baptism. Covenantal, yeah. In other words, we believe that you baptize your children as a mark of your faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to God and bringing them into the covenant. Are they fully in the covenant? No, this is where the federal vision fell apart, if you've ever heard of that controversy, the federal vision. Federal yeah, vision, we're bringing up some. We're bringing up some of uh, Presbyterian inside baseball, but that's all right. yeah, a little bit. It's not just Presbyterian. Again, well, uh, Dutch, Dutch Reformed and Reformed Baptist. Uh, for those who are uh, are are against the practice. Okay, what what is federal? Well, the Federal Vision believed in. Uh, it's basically dead. The Federal Vision is is gone. Uh, parts of it that were okay were are sort of inculcated into the church now, but most of, mostly it's gone, but they were, um, uh, communion. In other words, they would, they would give ch- covenantal children, uh, communion. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And I've had a problem with that all along. Even when I first heard of the, of the federal vision, of course I get it. The problem is that the mainstream has always hated the federal vision. And mm-hmm. even guys who were at one time in the federal vision, like uh, let, let's say Doug Wilson, who I, who okay. I know the most about okay. um, Doug Wilson uh, was not the hardcore of uh, shall we say of the federal vision. Uh, he always, he had used to write in his, uh, he had a magazine called the Credenda agenda. I remember that. You remember I, the I Credenda re- agenda? It. it was a good magazine. I think I still have, I think I still have a few copies laying around here somewhere. It's a good magazine. Really was a good magazine. Um, it did have some interesting articles. Yes, sure. it did. But, uh, he always called, uh, he always called the hardcores, the, uh, uh, double oatmeal stout um federal visionist he says i'm an amber ale federal visionist uh, oh my yeah he said uh, yeah i'm not into some of the some of the stuff that that they are and it was hard to pick those out okay so we've yeah. gone kind of far afield but the fact is there are these these things there are views of how uh church government should work but one thing everybody agrees on is that sacralism should be out. Now, the right. great fear, and it, I think it is a legitimate fear, that sacralism, which is essentially the church and the state operating as one. As yes, a, well, you don't, yeah, you don't want that. Right. You don't um, want that because they are two entirely sovereign and different spheres of authority. Exactly. They are not they they rule in different spheres um so what i've heard it described as uh, um and uh, the christendom that for instance is being talked about um and the uh, uh, na- uh christian nationalism that's being talked about is kyperian right uh, and abraham kyperian kyper. is if you may have abraham kuyper you may or may not know anything about it. we're really getting into the history lesson here Abraham well, Kuyper. Again, this is what I love about you seeing you weave all this together and be like, oh, yeah, okay, I get that now. So, right. Um, Abraham Kuyper was a prime minister of the Netherlands at the end mm-hmm. of the 19th century. And he believed in, uh, uh, he wanted to revive Christendom, which was already in its dying phases, uh, really was already dead. But what he wanted, to, he he talked exclusively, and I would suggest you go out and find some of his books. You can get them on Amazon. They're still in print. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham Kuyper, K-U-Y-P-E-R, Kuyper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's Dutch, which is why it's not pronounced the way it's spelled, um, just like French. Um, Quiet, yes. He talked about severe sovereignty. Yes. In other words that the state had sovereignty in civil matters. Correct. The church had sovereignty in spiritual matters. Correct. And that both spheres could interlock, but they were not to interfere with each other's sovereignty. In other words, the church would act as an advisory body to the state. And the state could be in support of the church by uh-huh. uh, uh, recognizing the church's sovereignty, for for instance. 
uh, which which is why in in this country people don't understand this why churches exe- are exempt from taxation they're exempt because they are not in the same sphere as the That's right. authority yeah well and, and for anybody who may be having trouble with it picture your mind go back to school and picture in your mind what's called a Venn diagram where you have circles right. and there's multiple circles and at some point some of the circles overlap and then there's like a little point in the middle, like if you bring them close enough together that maybe all of them overlap over one area, which means they share responsibilities or they split responsibilities. But in the areas where it's just their circle, that is their sovereignty area that, because none of the other the circles, which are the levers of authority, do uh, have a legitimate role. And if you look at scripture, there's really four. There's like the Venn diagrams, like four things. You have self-governance, which is your your responsibility for your proper response before God. You have family governance, which is when you you leave and cleave and you start your new family with your wife and then you build out with, with your children. And you have areas of responsibility that only the family can cover. Um, and then you have the church which is made up of those representative groups, families, individuals coming together uh, for corporate worship and for, you know, uh, using the keys of the kingdom uh, to spread the gospel. And it is, you know, it has its own particular area. And then the last one, and I would say probably the least important, but still equal in sovereignty in areas to the others, is the civil authority, um, our, our governance. Um not secular guy. Now, you know, let's get let's get rid of the idea of sacred and secular because really there is nothing secular, Chuck. I'm going right. to just throw that out there. Uh, there absolutely. is no, there is nothing, no blade of grass, no molecule of air, no decision of man that isn't under the control of God. God superintends it all sovereignly, uh, omnisciently, and omnipotently. So. There is no such thing. As much as we want to kid ourselves and go run and be rebels in the face of God and say, "You, we don't, we don't believe in you. We don't think you exist. We're all that is, and we're and we're all that matters." We're lying to ourselves. But the, the civil authority has a responsibility, but it's given to them by God. There are areas where those things overlap, you know, and you can think about some of the areas where, you know, so the individual self control. And the family, obviously, you know, you want to make sure that you're not a balkanized family where everybody's just off doing their own thing. And it's like two, three or four or five people living under the same roof, but sharing no experiences together. You know, that's that's not that's not the, that's not the family model. And of course, the church model, you can't have, you know, where everybody wants to come to church whenever they feel like it. And they want to hear just the message they want to hear. And it should all be individualized and tailored to them. That's not church. That's not corporate worship. <laughs> right. But any. But anyhow, just I'm, I, I think I've done enough trying to do the fine tuning points. Go ahead with what you were talking about. I appreciate that. That sphere sovereignty means, for instance, that there are there is mutual back scratching, but the real issue comes in with again as i say our our, our uh, baptist brothers and sisters who know their are worried about that sacralism that in fact we will 
we will begin to uh, um, recognize the old idea. And I think, what wasn't it Henry Van Til that said something like, uh, 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 the source of a nation's laws is that nation's God? Uh, I, yes, I believe was it was. Henry, Henry Van Til? It, 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 uh, somebody, <laughs> you and I have, have talked about uh, on many occasions. I don't remember. Yeah, it is Henry Van Til's book, The Calvinistic Concept of Culture. Of culture. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Um, what that means is uh, Baptists are worried that what will happen is is that uh, uh, some group will come in and will sweep into power uh, and begin to say, okay, yeah, we're going to say that you have to uh, give your uh, covenantal children baptism, or you have to uh, um, name something. And if you don't, then we're going to fine you, or we will give you some kind of minor league punishment. Remember, in the old days, um, in, in the early days of uh, of uh, credo baptism. Um, these guys were killed. They were burnt at the stake. They were uh, um, they were thrown into dungeons that uh, and starved to death. They were uh, uh, all kind uh, in uh, in Wittenberg. I think maybe uh, there was a Baptist who was put in a prison, and they they threw him into a dungeon because they gave him a, an above ground cell. And uh -huh. he, he would lean out the window and preach. Um, he would preach uh, credo baptism, and he was getting converts. <laughs> so they threw him in this this dungeon hole, and he was in there for seven years before he died. Um, you know, down uh -huh. in the deepest part of the dungeon. That's what uh, Baptists fear. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a legitimate fear because I think if you, if you did do Christian nationalism or Christendom and you didn't carefully design the laws, uh, the governing the, the nations under which were being ruled this way, you could run into trouble. This is why the first amendment is in the constitution of the United States of America. It doesn't say anything about separation of church and state because that's not the sentiment. What it's saying is you can't establish a national religion. You can't, and by religion I mean denomination. Yeah, you, you can't say that the the Anglicans only are. Uh, remember, one of the things that sparked the American Revolution. A lot of people don't know this. I'm always amazed because, well, I understand why it's not talked about. One of the things that the king tried to do was impose an Anglican bishop over all denominations. It didn't matter. They all had, you know, they didn't want to interfere, quote unquote. What they wanted them to do, though, was report to an Anglican bishop. I'm talking about Baptists. I'm talking about Presbyterians. I'm talking about Congregationalists. I'm talking about Quakers. Mm -hmm. um, true. Uh, name a group at the time. They would have had to report to an Anglican bishop. Why? Right. 
because Anglican bishops were responsible. The Anglican archbishop was responsible directly to the king. Well, yeah, exactly. The king was imposing, attempting to impose sacralism. And so the, the uh, people writing the constitution said, uh, Congress shall make no law uh, regarding establishment of a national religion. Now that wording, which they understood very clearly has been uh, obscured, uh, twisted, um, turned into something that it wasn't to say that, oh no, we have to allow uh, Satanists equal access to government services and, uh, and prayer and schools as Christians and Jews and, you know, Muslims. That's not what it meant. And by the way, there were Muslims here very early. Um, there were Jews here as well. And they would uh-huh. have had to report sure. to an Anglican bishop. And the fact is that they prohibited that, even though most of the states, I think nine out of the 13 colonies, or nine of the 13 states, by the time the Constitution was written, they were already states. Yeah. Um, nine of those 13 had established denominations at the state level. There you go. Not at the federal level. Why? Because the Constitution forbade it. And I think Massachusetts, for instance, was congregational until 1830. You know, there were, what does that mean, established church? That means they they got tax money. Well, what'd they get it for? What'd they get tax money for? They got it to feed the poor. Uh-huh. It was essentially a welfare system. And the, the churches were local, and so they were very well equipped to tell who really needed the aid and, and who, who was shirking. That's why that system was in place. Interesting, isn't it? It is. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. Um, you are, I think we're putting our finger on a, on a hot-button topic. Um, oh, yeah, aren't we? Yeah, and, you think? <laughs> and, and, and I think it's because of what's going on. If, if anybody's paying attention today, this is Thursday. You're going to hear this on Saturday. But you've noticed that, like, in the last couple, three days, we're having a, a major instability crisis among banks. You and I were talking about this a little bit offline. Right, exactly. And I think what's happened is it's, okay, I'm taking this from my perspective. Anybody can take it from whatever perspective they want to. But I am taking it that God sometimes gives us choices, and we can fear God or we can fear man. We can have the love of God or we can have the love of money. And I think what's happening is, God is breaking down idols in our in our lives and our culture as he is refining and pruning throughout our, you know, societal experiment that we have here. Uh, whether you want to call it Christendom, Christendom 2.0, um, you know, post-Christian America, post-modernist, whatever you want to call it. But I believe that we're seeing the results of whether we choose, uh, whether we acknowledge that God is sovereign and it is God who guides us and leads us, or whether we're trying to guide and lead ourselves and we're doing so through the auspices of 
power, force, and control and using money as the leverage. And as you can see, as what's been happening here in the last oh, month or so, as we're having banks collapse, you know, we just had one that's overnight, uh, the, um, the Federal Reserve basically uh, liquidated and then turned around and sold it to JP Morgan Chase uh, to try to do it. Now we've got four or five other banks today that were saying yesterday, oh, we're great, you know, our deposits are up, and now they're off 60%, and it looks like that they are going to go under. Um, this could be about as big a banking crisis or maybe bigger than what happened in 2008. If people remember that, it wasn't a fun ride. Uh, but the point, point is, have we been putting too much of our faith, too much of our hope, too much of our trust in what we can have and do on our own and on our own strength, or have we been trusting in God? And I would say that it breaks down that there are many people who are in, going to be in positions of great pain and great angst and great suffering because they put their trust in the wrong place. They, the object of their faith was not in the sovereign God of the universe. It was in a piece of his creation that they I idolized, which is money and power. Yeah. And those things are starting to fall down around the ears. I mean, I mean, look today, almost every place you turn online, there's an article about some bank, some group breaking down. As a matter of fact, our friends over at Zero Hedge right now have got like an update going. Uh, and it's just like a, it's almost like a, a, t a tick. Yeah, what do they call it? Um, when you're at the stock market, the ticker tape. Oh, yeah, yeah, so it's a so Western Alliance Bank Corp denied a report that it's exploring strategic options, including a possible sale of all or parts of its businesses, even though they said, oh, we're just fine. Um, and the, the PacWest, which is another big bank, shares halted after extending route to 52% losses. KBW Bank Index down as much as 5.5% to the lowest since September 2020. And the S&P 500 falls 1% to the lowest in intra-trade day intraday trading since March the 30th. And Western Alliance resumes, extends slump to 45%, halted again. So we've got a number of banks, like larger banks out West mainly, um, that are starting to crumble. Um, you know, and, and they just did first reserve. Well, I think it was what first reserve was the one that uh, um, the um, first Republic. First Republic, thank you, thank you. First Republic Bank was the one that the uh, um, Federal Reserve liquidated and then sold it off to J.P. Morgan Chase here a couple of days ago. So we have a bank run going. Uh, so, folks, you know, if you've been saving for a rainy day, it, it, it looks like it's getting real cloudy. You may want to pull some of that money uh, <laughs> somewhere or have a ability to get a hold of a cash reserve in case your bank decides they were going to close and lock their doors for a few days and you can't get anything. That's a scary thought. And yet, uh, it, it, it can be, and it could be still. So a bank holiday is always a possibility. Um, yep. now remember, uh, it's not that long ago, Barry. Uh, what is it now? 15 years since 2008. Yep. Um, what were the libertarian, the uh, Mises people, the the Mises Institute and and those who were who were Austrian economists were right. warning us 
in 2006 and seven that this 2008 thing was coming and and the uh the orthodox shall we say uh, keynesian economists were laughing don't worry everything's too big to fail none of this can happen well what did happen um the whole system collapsed why well kind of the same reason as now you get into a position where uh interest rates uh start doing goofy th- i mean the fed knowing full well that we are just about to tip the scale into we're very close to tipping into a depression um what do they do they raise interest rates why are they raising interest rates well the conspiracy minded of us here this is about the great reset and if you you don't know what that is there's an attempt to crash the whole capitalist system yes and why so you can replace it with a with the third way the third basically the third way is just socialism um, well third way is is a government a government run uh social credit scoring where and with uh, no physical cash so it's all electronic so that they can decide whether or not you should be buying things or not right they they would have a a complete say they they really want to wipe cash out now i i i'm a member of a group called, called national write your congressman okay uh, it basically sends you stuff and makes it easy for you to write your congressman it, it's not cheap it's it costs uh i forget what it costs a year uh, but it's easy. Makes it easy to write your congressman about these issues. Um, a box will come up. You fill in your uh, your thing to your congressman, the governor, uh, your local. Uh, um, I just got one today on the bill to uh, ban um, transgender males from competing in girls' sports in Ohio. Right. Ba- uh, whatever. Uh, but um, where I was going with that is... Um, People have, we knew this was coming. And again, the Austrians were saying it's coming again, folks, because these banks have all invested in bonds. Okay. Yep. And um, what happens to bonds when the interest rate starts to flips and goes bad? They tank. Yeah, they do. They're all holding this bond paper that's worthless or not worthless, but it's worth a fraction of what it should, what it was worth, uh, before the pandemic, because this, this crash, it's a slow motion crash. It's, it's sort of like watching a, a train wreck in slow motion. You can see the two trains coming towards each other, creeping, 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 Oh man, I sure hope somebody hits the brakes. Well, everybody knows this. Nobody's going to hit the brakes. It's going to be a full on, full speed crash and it's going to be ugly. And there's going to be a lot of destruction. Um, again, people in, in the uh, Austrian school have been predicting this. And right now I'm already reading articles that said this is much worse than 2008. And those of us with a memory remember that 2008 and nine was rough. Well, and we've just come out of two and a half years of COVID restrictions and uh, the upheaval of the economy in that respect, which we didn't have in 2008. Um, you know, we're coming out of uh, 
having an administration right now who is blowing it by the numbers because, you know, Sidney Powell at the, uh, the Fed, or excuse me, not the Fed, um, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, basically was saying, hey, oh, Jerome Powell, excuse me. That, you know, You're right, right. And right. the Federal not Reserve Sydney. Chairman, yeah, the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, basically saying, oh, getting rid of First Republic of J.P. Morgan Chase, that solidified the base, we're all good. Within 24 hours of him saying that, we now have three other major banks that are tipping on insolvency right now. So the Biden administration really doesn't have the first clue of what's going on here. Uh, I mean, or maybe they do, because there was another interesting little piece, Chuck, you and I were going to talk about. Uh, We may or may not get around to it today, but um, just a little hint that maybe there's something off because it looks like um, the House Government Oversight Committee uh, and James Comer, uh, the chairman of the committee, are digging into and looking at an FBI report that while Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, he may have had uh, improper dealings with foreign nationals in relation to bribes. Interesting that all of a sudden we have this big banking scare at the same moment that they're going to subpoena these uh, documents and reports from the FBI to talk about whether or not there were quid pro quos, uh, just as had been alleged by certain campaigns during the 2020 election. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and, and if you recall, certain campaigns essentially got poo-pooed and said, oh, it's all just campaign rhetoric and uh, you're you're far worse and that kind of thing by the uh, the uh, Enemedia. And I use that phrase uh, because it absolutely fits. Uh, the the uh, places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, CNN, uh, especially um, all the major C- ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, PBS, all ran interference for Joe Biden, and knowing uh, with. with I think honestly, they knew full well that he was corrupt as you could be. There's a there's an old saying about Lincoln's original Secretary of War when he first took office. Uh-huh. A guy named Simon Cameron, and Lincoln always des- des- described him as uh, so corrupt. The only thing he wouldn't steal was a hot stove. <laughs> and and that's Joe Biden would probably make every effort to steal the hot stove. Um. Now, part of the, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about uh, Ukraine and Russia and all that stuff. Well, remember that uh, Joe Biden's son is uh, essentially took bribes, was put on a board of a gas uh, company, a state-owned gas company in Ukraine. So the government's involved. Um there were, were was uh, some interaction with Russia as well regarding gas and oil uh, reserves and how they would be used. Uh, and there, uh, the whole thing about the Hunter Biden laptop that everybody seems to have forgotten and shouldn't is the fact that all the records were on there that basically said from Ukraine, we need access to Joe Biden, who was at the time the sitting vice president. What did Joe Biden do? Joe Biden uh, goes to Ukraine, knows yep. that that the uh, government prosecution was looking at 
the whole setup with Hunter Biden looking to prosecute this bribery. And Joe Biden went before the CFR when he was running for president and said, I got that guy fired. Yep. CFR, Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, globalist ties to uh, all governments, especially uh, intelligence agencies and that kind of thing. It's a, a very nefarious, very dark. Uh, they, they're heavily involved in policy decisions at the State Department. Um, and Joe Biden went on and admitted that he basically used his authority to get to get uh, um, this prosecutor fired. Now, this is not too long after Zelensky took power. Zelensky took power in a coup. Zelensky is not the elected uh, leader of uh, Ukraine. So that being said, these guys are corrupt. Uh, they are so corrupt they would even steal the hot stove. That's what. That's part of what's going on. And everybody's talking about money in terms of of uh, the amount of money is staggering, Barry. And it's it's essentially a house of cards. Um, one of the reasons that the feds want to take over, um, uh, eliminate cash. They're desperate to eliminate cash. Why? Because people are slowly and surely saying there's something wrong here. They want to go to more uh, of an, uh, you know, they want to do things underground. Mm -hmm. Why? They want to bypass banks. Why? Because banks are basically coming out and saying, we don't like your politics. We're freezing your accounts. That is going on. The, uh, ask anybody who, who's a gun manufacturer how tough it is to actually get a bank. It's really tough. I was going to say, in this day and age, it's pretty tough. Right. Why is that? Well, the government obviously wants you not to be armed. Why? Well, what we proved during the pandemic was in the countries that were were allowed to own firearms and were allowed to, uh, um, um, you know, the implied threat was there. If you go too far, we're armed. They don't want that because the whole COVID thing was a, it was a trial run to see who would say yes, who would say no, and who uh, how much control they could get. Well, they figured out they could get a lot, but they can't get enough. Um, all they had to do was lie through their teeth about uh, how deadly this uh, virus was. The the deadly virus that was 99.9% um, survivable. Yeah. Um, the, the one that was going to kill us all, that 99.9 that .9 or 99.8, something like that. That's what's going on. They want to kill the ability to do an underground economy so what will people do well for a while they were going with uh, cryptocurrency okay cryptocurrency turns out to be a grift right bitcoin dogecoin all these yeah, goofy I am, I, I am totally like over my head oh yeah when it comes it, to this stuff i have no idea how that, all that works it's a grift and and I know that I get these these things. It's uh, I'll get these <laughs> these scam emails, and it says we've been, we implanted this device that we're monitoring your your email act your net activity. Mm -hmm. 
And we've noticed that you've gone to these embarrassing websites and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, I haven't. Um, but uh, unless you give us, and they'll, they'll come up with some arbitrary number, $1,500 in Bitcoin. They want their they want their bribe money in Bitcoin. Why? It's untraceable. Here's where to go, and they will give you a link. Here, here's where to go. Bitcoin, buy, go buy Bitcoin. Uh, well, of course, I'm not going to go buy Bit Bitcoin. Uh, the government will shut Bit Bitcoin down and Dogecoin. I think there there have already been two or three cryptos that they have been shut down. Why? Because they're fake. More fake. The money is supposed to have something backing it up, right? Well, true. Yeah, in order to be legal tender, yes. Yeah. Well, that's now, the now, point. Bitcoin now, okay, doesn't. and that's a good, but but let's also say that our current, what you call the Federal Reserve notes or ferns, really don't have anything backing them up either because it's backed up on the full faith and credit of the United States, and we are in debt in in the triple trillions of dollars. That's absolutely right. Now I've heard people talk about our debt isn't isn't as bad as you think, and I go. Really? Add it's much the, worse. Add in the unfunded mandates. We did a show on that's this, right. I don't know, how many years ago? Oh, five or six years ago, yeah. At least, yeah. We talked about the unfunded mandates, and they they gave the the uh, the current debt, and then, and then they said, now multiply it by three or four. That's where the real debt is. Because now, I think we were at $200 trillion at that yeah, point. It was some number that's so astronomical. Um, it, that it, it just boggles the mind. Um, now, what will happen with underground economies? I had somebody ask me this. What do you think will happen if, if uh, you know, the government comes in and, and makes it impossible that you can't have cash anymore and you, everything has to be in electronic, uh, you know, so they can monitor it? And I go, people will come up with another form of barter. Yes, they always do. They'll, they'll come up with some other way. That's how money started, Barry. As anybody who's who's ever studied money, money as, you know, we we think when I say money, I can remember in our Consti uh, Institute on the Constitution class, I'd hold up a dollar bill and say, how much is this worth? And everybody'd say a dollar. I said, no, it's not. It's not worth, no. it's worth a fraction of a penny. Uh, it's worth whatever it costs to have it printed. Yeah, it's it's what the uh, the capital investment in in creating it is. Yes, it's the, the only value it has is we recognize that I can trade this for a candy bar. What? It, why? No, and, you can't. Candy bars are over a dollar. Now. Well, now they're over a buck. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> two of these I can trade for a candy bar and get a little bit of change back. That's right. Um, yeah, and and there's a reason for that too. Uh, that's that inflation beast that the government just keeps cranking them out and it makes the ones that are out there less valuable. That's but that being said, uh, money came about so we could, we could uh, uh, barter without bartering. If you, if the uh, candlestick maker needed meat, but the butcher didn't need candles, the candlestick maker was in trouble. He would have to go, uh, you know, trade with somebody else, something that, uh, you know, the butcher would say, go over to the coppersmith and I need blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah. And then they had to negotiate a price in candlesticks. Well, that kind of an economy works best 
when you have a constant stream of something that everyone recognizes um, represents the value of your labor, mm-hmm. the value of your personal production, and that that value is set. That means, what does it mean? It means some professions uh, at different times have higher values than other things. You know, candlestick maker may not be in a time mm-hmm. of famine. The candlestick maker may not be as valuable as the guy, the butcher, or the green, or the green grocer. Yeah, if, if you, you need if, if you need meat, you don't need candlesticks. That's right. Uh, but in the meantime, the candle somebody needs candlesticks, and they're willing to pay the candlestick maker. That's right. For and he can go then buy meat and grocery and his green grocery. That's what money is. Now the government says we have to be in complete control. Remember, before the National Reserve Act and before the National Currency Act, who printed money? Who printed uh, who printed paper money? Wasn't the federal government? No, it was the state governments. It wasn't even the state governments all the time. No, not always. It was local banks. Local banks, yeah, and they had fractional currency too. Sometimes, yeah. And where they ran into trouble was somebody would get greedy and say, Hey, we can print all this, these certificates. And they were called gold certificates or silver certificates, mm-hmm. and, which means you could go redeem them, redeem them in real money. Well, that being gold or silver. Um, and w- what would happen? Sometimes the banks would get greedy and start putting out way more uh, paper. Um, yes, they would. Paper certificates than there was gold and silver to back it up. So there would be a run. If there was a panic, people would um, run to the bank to retrieve their, their hard money. Oh, we overprinted. We don't have any left. Right. Uh oh. Um, that's why the states and the feds stepped in to regulate that, and then they just took it over. After the Federal Reserve Act, basically the states and the uh, um, the feds uh, couldn't would um, had no control over over the money supply. Um, yeah. I know, gee, Barry, you've been to the state house before, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I can remember when I was a kid well, as a coach. Once or twice. Taking the, taking the tour uh-uh. of the vault in the, in the state house. Yep. Where they kept the reserves for state issued money and bonds. That's and right. Stuff. That's a, that's the first time I ever saw a $10,000 bill was. <laughs> At the state house. Um, um, that being said, um, are things better or worse since the government took them over? It's worse. Well, absolutely is. Of course, at one point in time, our money was fixed on, you know, something tangible, gold. You know, so so much you you set a specific amount for you know a piece of gold. And that was the base rate. And then everything else was uh, judged valuable off of that. Barry, uh, uh, people are ignorant of these of these things. 
sadly. And why are they ignorant of it? Because they don't teach that in school. I, I can still remember uh, being told that the uh, the national debt was money that we owed ourselves. Well, that's that is a way to look at it, I suppose. Yes, and, but it's it's an absurd way to look at it if you think about it. Um, True. It's a, a yes. Do we buy savings bonds and that kind of thing? Yes. Are bonds issued? Yes. Who owns a lot of our debt? Foreign countries now. Yeah. Chinese, I think, are the number one owner of American debt. But Chinese Chinese and the Japanese, I think both. Uh, and you know what? And the British. And Saudis. The and British. the Saudis. Uh, but we also own some of their debt. This yeah, well, is, you know, that's it's that idea of uh, cascading cross defaults. I, that's right. But here's the problem. Anybody wants to tip tip the system, they're going to tip it all. That's exactly it. If one one member of this of this uh uh group that that trades each other's debt, if one member collapses or has a revolution in the uh uh the new government say uh we are repudiating all debt, the whole system collapses. Yep. Which is which is why the United States government basically has intelligence agencies out there uh agitating to uh uh keep in friendly governments and get rid of unfriendly governments. That's exactly what they're doing. Um it, they're attempting to do so. That's right. It's part of it is global power, part of it is global economics. Uh, we have allowed the the beast to get too big, and it, uh, uh, I can still remember a a cartoon I I saw once when I was a kid, and it was uh, two panels, and one was the world. The world was opening its door to this little kitten, that uh, you know, cute little kitten at the door, and, and the world let let it in, and then the next panel is. Uh, the man who opened the door to let the kitten in has obviously been devoured because his necktie is hanging out of the mouth of the giant tiger that has since um, devoured, devoured him. him. And that's kind of what this is, the situation we're in right now. Yeah, that's true. And I don't think it's a situation that's going to get any better until men turn away from their idolatry and turn back to trust God. And this is why we began this discussion with a discussion on Christendom and Christian nationalism, because under Christian nationalism, the economy would look vastly different. Vastly different. Absolutely. And that's part of the, that, that's what, you know, if, how do these two things connect? Everything connects. That's well, right. I, it's it's all interconnected. That's right. Because the nation's laws, the source of a nation's laws are that nation's God. And right exactly. now, we worship power and money when we should be uh, worshiping the one true God. So as we come to this National Day of Prayer, let's pray for repentance from the idolatries that we put in front of us and turn back as second Chronicles seven fourteen says, and turn from our wicked ways and seek God's face and pray that he will heal our land. 
And that being said, I believe we're out of time. I think we are. So, you know what we think. We want to know what you think. www.principledpolicy.com. That's principledpolicy.com. Please be in prayer for Barry's health. And um, join us again next week for another Principles and Policies.